Good afternoon. It's wonderful to be here and see all of you. Our family has been very much enjoying our time here in Southern California. It's beautiful here. The weather's been great. The friends have been even better. We're just very blessed to be here with all of you. Um, I'm going to share this afternoon on when God says to gamble, worshiping the God of relationships. Now, I realize that's kind of a confusing title, but I hope it'll make more sense as we go forward with this presentation. Um, I'd like to start out by having you imagine for just a moment that you're looking at a map of the campus of Loma Linda University and you see this auditorium where we are right now. It would be just like a little dot, right? You and I would be even tinier dots, this little dot within this dot. But then if you look at the map of even just the town of Loma Linda, the university is pretty small, and certainly when you look at a map of California, Loma Linda is just a tiny dot, right? Well, then imagine that you can zoom out a little farther, and you can see our planet. California is suddenly very small, right? And when you zoom out a little farther, you can see that our planet is really just very tiny when you look at it within our galaxy. Then our galaxy is also pretty small, right? I mean, we've got a solar system, and then our galaxy, and then out there even farther, you know, this universe that is just vast and immense and incomprehensible. We have no way to imagine where the end of the universe is. You know, my kids have asked me, well, Mommy, what's at the end of the universe? Well, if there was an end, what would be on the other side of that wall? They're like, hmm. You see, we, we really can't begin to grasp how big eternity is. It's just not something that fits into our minds. My children want to know there's a beginning and an ending to everything, and there's just not to some things, including God. Here is a God who rules this immense, incomprehensible universe, who has no beginning and no ending. And when he defines himself in the Bible, he uses one word. He uses the word love. God is love. Isn't that amazing? There are other words that God uses to define himself, like light, but I think they all are kind of synonyms. They're, they are interchangeable with the word love. Light and love are very similar, right? God is love. And I find it amazing that the God who rules the entire universe would define himself using a relational word. Isn't that amazing? The God who rules the universe is a God of relationships. Now, I don't mean just dating relationships. Of course, everybody, you know, who's single is dreaming of getting married. You know, they, they say marriage is like a revolving door. All the ones on the outside are trying to get in, and all the ones on the inside are trying to get out, right? Now, that's not entirely true. I love being married. I've been married 12 years now to my husband, and I haven't regretted it once. It's wonderful. As they say, Billy Graham's wife, Ruth Graham Bell, was asked once, have you ever considered divorce? And she said, Divorce? Never. Murder, yes, but never divorce. <laughs> There's something to that. <laughs> but I'm not just talking about relationships, meaning dating, marriage type relationships, but all relationships. God is a God of relationship. And isn't that amazing? Think about it. God gave us a law. He says, here is the law that runs the universe. 
love. Love God first, love your neighbor as yourself. Only two commands. How simple is that, right? This was the law in heaven that Lucifer disobeyed when he said, I'm not going to love God first. Why do we have to worship him first? Why does he have to always be first? And you know, there's this interesting statement that one of my favorite authors, Ellen White, wrote. She says, and this isn't a direct word-for-word quote, but she says that the concept of self-sacrificing love, Satan hates. Its very existence, he denies. Now that, wow, that's really amazing to me. So Satan's first accusation is that God is not actually loving, that he's actually selfish, that God is not love was the first lie. That's what Lucifer believed, and that's what he's been trying his best to convince every one of us to believe. And believing that lie is what lies at the root of every addiction, every worship issue that we face. Is God really worthy of my worship? Does he really love me unselfishly? That is the ultimate question that we have to answer because if he doesn't love me completely, then I'm going to look for someone or something else that can satisfy me outside of him. And relationships are often that God that people flee to instead, relationships with other people. We look for somebody to complete us, to make us feel loved and worthwhile when we don't find that in God. And then we become immersionists, looking for someone to, to fill us. And then, of course, we get burnt because that's a selfish relationship and it's innately flawed because selfishness is against the law of life. So then when we get burnt, what do we do? I'll never fall in love again, right? And we see this terrible cycle going on in the music and the, the relationships of the world. I'll never love. And then we become isolationists. And then when that doesn't work, we're so desperately thirsty that we'll just grab whoever's going past and have another immersionist relationship. And back and forth we go, being burnt by both kinds of self-centered relationship because we could not worship the God of relationship. So that's what I'm going to talk about today. The God of relationships. That God says... This God, this vast, immense, incomprehensible ruler of the universe, defines himself with a relational word. Then he sums up his character in a law that is the transcript of his character, and it says, love God first, love your neighbor as yourself. Why is that? Why would that be the one single thing that he measures? Of all the valuable, important things that happen in this world and that we can measure things by, the one thing that God says matters is this nebulous, invisible thing called relationships. You know, I look at all of you in here, and most of you I don't know, but all of you have relationships, and some of you have relationships with other people in here. There are a couple of people in here that I have strong bonds with, but you can't see it from up here, can you? None of you can look at me and see, oh, there's this strong, invisible connection between her and this person and that person. You don't see it because relationships are invisible, and yet, They are the thing that the law of God says is important. The one thing that he says he's going to judge us on. You are lawbreakers or law keepers based on your relationships. Not just relationships with one another, of course, but relationship with God first. But if we don't have that deep living connection with God, it's going to come out by polluting our relationships with others. Our relationships with others will become toxic because our relationship with him is incomplete. So God's entire law is wrapped up in this one thing, how we relate to him and to one another. That's what we're going to be judged on. You, you look at, the Bible is full of this, right? The sheep and the goats. They're, they're judged based on whether they treat others well, right? 
when did I do that to you? And as much as you did it to the least of these, you did it to me, or not to me, right? But then we read 1 Corinthians 13, and we know it's not how you treat people that really matters. It's what your motives were, because if you give your body to be burned and you give everything you have to the poor, it's not going to benefit you squat in the judgment, unless you did it out of love. So here is a God who rules the universe, who transcends everything, who says there's one thing that counts in this world. It's relationships. How you relate to me first, which will then determine how you relate to one another. Now, if all of the law is relational, let me ask you a question. Is all sin also relational? You know, for many people, and I myself for many years, I thought that sin was behavior. It was stuff I did. And if I didn't get it right, then I felt terrible. I hadn't behaved the way I should. I yelled at somebody or I got angry at somebody. Well, then I need to behave better, right? So I'd pray earnestly to be forgiven, but I'd still feel far from God. So I'd kind of beat myself up for a few days until I started feeling like maybe God could love me again. Now I'd kind of atone for my own sins, you know? The blood of Jesus wasn't quite enough to pay for my sin, but if I supplemented it with some good works, beat myself up, then I could, I could finally be saved, right? And then I started understanding this concept that the law is relational. So then sin is also relational. All sin is rooted in broken relationship. People commit adultery because they have broken relationship with God first, which then makes them decide, I must have this thing that I crave. People steal because of broken relationship. People lie because of broken relationship. People break the Sabbath because of broken relationship. And isn't it ultimately the Sabbath, which is at the heart of the law, isn't it ultimately a day for relationship? What is the Sabbath? It's a day for quality time and communication with God and with one another. All relationships are built on quality time and communication. And if we truly kept the Sabbath the way we're supposed to, as a day for relationships, then that would flow into all the rest of our week and make us, transform us, us into loving, beautiful people who will be a delight to be around. You see, if sin is broken relationship and is rooted in broken relationship, then righteousness also is right relationship, isn't it? Righteousness is becoming like Jesus Christ, becoming like God who is love, and his righteousness is therefore something that's relational, which would make sense because unlike Muslims, we believe in a God who is a community, right? If I love myself, I'm being selfish, but God can love himself because he's a triune God. Therefore, he does not violate his law by loving himself. And isn't that amazing that God is love, that God is not selfish, that he can never be selfish. That means that God didn't create us because he was bored and lonely and wanted somebody to bow before him and say, you are great, you are mighty, you are wonderful, as Lucifer accused that that was, that was his motive in creating. He's selfish, he wants somebody to bow before him, but if we didn't please him, he'd wipe us out. Can't you see why God couldn't just wipe out Lucifer? Now, of course, he could have. He could have just, you know, people say, well, but if he wiped him out, then everybody would serve him out of fear. Not necessarily. What if God just wiped from their memory the fact that Lucifer ever existed? Why couldn't he do that? Why couldn't he just wipe them all out? Start fresh. Nobody would ever know what happened last century, would they? And who would want to live in a universe like that? 
Not me, and apparently not God either. So he said, I've got a better way. Let me show them what love is like. We'll isolate this group in quarantine. Those who have decided they want to try out this alternate law, the law of selfishness. If everybody does whatever they please, then they'll be happy. That's what they've decided they want to try out. I'll honor their wish. Let them choose. We'll put them in quarantine on this planet. Let them work that out. We'll see how that goes. And then everyone will ultimately figure out, was that a good idea or not? And those who decide they don't want to live by that law anymore, those who decide they'd rather live by the law of heaven, the law of love, those will get a second chance. After they've learned to live by the law of love, then I will come and I will take them to a home where they will belong. So God gave us his law of love. Now, what is love? Because, you know, love is a really popular um, concept these days. I find when I talk to pretty much anybody, you know, if I sit by a random person on the subway, say, well, you know, I believe in love. That's great. I had a friend write to me recently who's a new ager, said she's considering spiritual. You know, she's decided she wants to kind of move in that direction after all, after years of being more atheistic. And I said, well, remember, God is love. But I realized she's inhibited in her ability to process that because when she says God is love, she thinks, I like that. Love is great because love is this soft, pink, fluffy stuff in most people's minds these days, right? Love has words that people think are synonyms like acceptance, like equality. Words that people think, well, you know, the rainbow symbolizes love. Well, it probably did a couple thousand years ago, but it symbolizes some other things now. Things that are redefined as love because we, as humans, we like to take this vast, incredible concept of love that rules the universe, the God who says, I am love, and I define what love is. We like to take what he says and cram it through our narrow, selfish little minds, and then whatever pops out the other end, we say, this, this is love. I figured it out. What I perceive to be loving is love, and whatever I perceive not to be loving, that's not love, right? And then people want to throw out the Old Testament because they say, well, why would a God of love destroy Jericho, for example? All those poor people, and he just made the walls fall down and smash all those women and children flat. Well, now, I look at that story and say, now, if I come at it with a presupposition that God is love, and I know God is love, therefore, let's look for the love in this story. There's love all over it. Here's a God who warns these people. He has them so close to the river Jordan that they find out very quickly. Their spies come running back with white faces. You won't believe it. The river just parted. Those people walked across on dry land. And he makes it happen at flood time. So it's an even more dramatic miracle to make sure these people know this God has power. And then when the spies make it into Jericho, what does Rahab tell them? Our hearts have melted from you. The Holy Spirit was working on these people's hearts, wasn't he? God was doing everything he could to reach the people of Jericho. Then on come not a whole mass of soldiers that immediately knock the city down in one night, but people who walk around the city. You know that the city of Jericho is not very big. They would have made it around in an hour or so. And now you've got 23 other hours that those people could throw a rope over the wall, just like the spies did, and light out for other territories. You know, it'll be interesting when we get to heaven to find out just how many people left Jericho instead of staying around. Who knows? But you know, the thing is, God gave Jericho all these warnings, sent his Holy Spirit to speak to their hearts. You see, all of the stories of the Old Testament are like this. But 
many people look at the Bible and they say, this is loving, this is not loving. No, we don't get to define what is love and is not love. We get to discover it, and we discover it at the feet of Jesus. We discover it when we study the story of a God who says, neither do I condemn thee. At the same time, he says, go and sin no more. We like to mix that up, you know? We'll, we'll have the whole go and sin no more gospel. And everyone loves to beat other people up with the go and sin no more. You know, I've noticed that a lot of people like to write things on Facebook like, this sin of other people is disgusting. I'm like, you know, maybe we shouldn't waste a whole lot of time saying us, other people's sins are disgusting. Maybe we should just use that word for our own sins. Don't you think? It might be better. But we like to do the go and sin no more thing, half the gospel, which is, of course, no gospel at all, or we do the other one, the neither do I condemn thee, which is the more in style half of love right now. But either one of them, as half a gospel, is no gospel at all. God says them together, neither do I condemn thee, go and sin no more. The only way we can go and sin no more is when we internalize that freedom from condemnation. So when one of my friends told me recently, you know, I am moved in with my girlfriend. I know you may not define that as being loving. That may not fit your, your belief system as fine, but I believe it's fine and therefore it's loving for me. Okay. Does that make it loving? This kind of reminds me of Galileo when the Inquisition tried him and put him on house arrest for the rest of his life because of his theory of heliocentrism. You know, does this make sense? Galileo says, I believe the picture is bigger. And the others go, no, my senses tell me this, and therefore this is true. Now, Galileo is the hero. But back then, he was not. You see, it's much wiser for us to just take God at his word. If he says it, he knows what he's talking about. He sees the whole universe. We are the pinprick within a pinprick within a pinprick within a pinprick, looking at it from our narrow little picture and going, I think it's this way. Now, that doesn't mean that we shouldn't try to discover love, but rather that we should spend our lifetimes figuring out how God defines what is love. Now, one thing that we can see very clearly, though, is that love is risky. You know, how many of you have observed this in your lives? Anybody else out there besides me? When I met my husband, he seemed like a really nice guy. But he lived in Africa, and you know, there was a part of me that said, why bother? I don't even lose a friendship by telling this guy I'm not interested in him. I wasn't risking very much. But then I got to know him a little more and a little more, and there was just something about this guy. I couldn't get over him. He was amazing. So I started to get to know him more and get to know him more, and eventually we got into a committed relationship where we were dating or courting or whatever anybody wants to call it. What we were doing was risky. And then we got engaged. The risks just amped up higher, and then we got married. I joined myself in covenant relationship with a guy who I barely knew because I believed that he was the best man in the world for me to marry. And I've never found myself proved wrong on that. I love being married to him. He was the best man in the world for me to marry, and I am so thrilled that God brought us together. But you know what? That didn't make love not risky. Here's the thing. We're called to live in a risky relationship. We're called to gamble on love because God has given us first a love relationship with him, the one that's risk-free. We aren't going to get hurt when we give ourselves totally to God. 
But then he says, all right, when you've decided to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, all right, next command, love your neighbor as yourself. And that's where it gets really messy. Because people will misunderstand us. People will hurt us. People are just plain selfish, aren't they? It's terrible, but it's true. When you decide to love other people, you're guaranteed to get hurt. You know, the Bible tells us that if you love those who love you, what reward do you deserve? Even the publicans do that in Matthew 5.46. I don't really like that verse, you know? Because I have a lot of, of friends that I love to love. They're great. They're so easy to love. I delight in spending time with them. They make me laugh. I feel great when I've spent an evening with them. It's great. Those are the people I like to love. And God says, that's wonderful. You need those relationships. But if you just love those that love you, even the publicans do that. Even those who have no relationship with God. Because that's really actually selfish, isn't it? If I love the people who water me, gratify me, make me feel great, what sort of sacrifice have I made? You know, you never really find out whether somebody's your friend until you go through conflict with them sometimes. Then you find out. Then the gold rises to the top and the dross is burned off. So God calls us to risky relationships, not just to love those that love us, which still is risky because some of the people that I was most certain would never let me down, some of the people I was sure loved me, and I was like, now this is somebody who will definitely be a bridesmaid in my wedding. Well, not so fast, you know, it doesn't always work that way. Sometimes the people you're closest to are the ones who hurt you the most. But we still have to live in vulnerable relationship. Relational isolation violates God's law. Because Matthew 22, verses 37 through 39 say, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. In other words, if I love the Lord my God with all my heart, with all my soul, with all my mind, with all my strength, but I don't love my neighbor as myself, I'm under the condemnation of the law of God. Now, of course, the, the fact and reality is Nobody can love the Lord with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength and not love others, too. Because the love of the law is a cycle. The more I love God, the more I see his image in all those around me that he's created. You know, there's something about when I start catching a vision of what I'm worth in God's sight that just transforms my community. I look around and I see this homeless guy on the street and I think, wow, he smells bad and he's only got three teeth in his mouth and he's worth just as much as I am. You see what I mean? When we love God, we will love others. We'll start learning. And the other great thing is, when we learn to love others, we learn to love God better. Isn't that the way God designed it? Look at how he's created us. He puts us in families. Now see, I'm a counselor. I spend a lot of time doing marriage and family kind of therapy, helping people who have been abused specifically. I do a lot of that. And, you know, if I'd been God, I might have laid things out a little differently. When Adam and Eve sinned, I might have said, okay, you guys could have had children, but you're going to really mess them up if you do now. So I'm just going to have babies hatch out of eggs in the woods, and they'll look to me for support. I'll be their sole father. I'll be the one who helps them. And then they'll learn about my character. They'll learn to love me naturally because they'll see how loving and good and kind I am. Because, you know, 
I kid you not, seeing people in counseling, I see so many people whose picture of God has been profoundly marred by the mistakes of their parents. Their parents had only one job, show your children what God's love is like. And yet, there's never been a perfect parent. Unfortunately, even my children have to deal with my brokenness, my sinfulness, my selfishness. And these things warp their picture of who God is. They make them feel sometimes like maybe God gets mad at them when they don't do everything right. Maybe God isn't always loving. Maybe God sometimes just wants to relax and go, just leave me alone for a little while. See, I mess up their picture of who God is by the way I parent them. And yet, God decided, as messy as human relationships are, he still wants to put us in families. Because as messed up as families may, still, may be, they still teach us about the love of God. That baby who's lying there in its parents' arms doesn't know that there's a God in heaven, doesn't know that they're created in the image of God and have a responsibility to love others. But they learn about love as they lie in their parents' arms, as their parents take care of them, as their parents kiss them and snuggle them and love them. And this is why God gave us families, to teach us about the love of God. And then when our families mess us up, as all families do, he gives us a secondary family of the church, a community, a wider group of people who can help patch up some of those ways that we misunderstand the character of God. And best of all, he gave us the word of God, the truth about who God is, so that we can discover who God is. As he's promised, when my father and my mother forsake me, then the Lord will take me up. And in any way that you or I have been wounded by our families of origin, God wants us to know, I'll make up the difference. I'll heal your wounds. I will bring you emotional freedom and beauty as you find your strength in me. Now, we've talked about relational isolation being a problem. It leads to immersion, right? One sinful extreme will lead to the opposite sinful extreme because both of them are looking to self instead of to Christ. There's a book called God Attachment that I found very interesting. On page 127 it says, even pain we've buried for years need not keep clouding our lives. With the love of God and a few trusted friends, we can overcome anxious, avoidant, and fearful patterns in relationships. How do we do that? How do we grow into the image of God through our relationships? You know, I've never found a better way to grow than by studying the life of Jesus. And if you have your Bible, you're welcome to turn to Mark chapter 10 and verse 21 with me. This uh, story, we, I, we don't have a whole lot of time, so I'm just going to kind of summarize it here. Jesus was talking to a rich young ruler. This young man comes running to him, kneels in the dust. And I have to admit, if I were one of the disciples, I would be going, Jesus, please don't mess up this one. This guy is undoubtedly in rich robes, you know. You can tell back then whether somebody had wealth or not by the way they dressed. So this guy comes running up and immediately the disciples go, now this one could really make, it sure, make sure that we have some lamb tonight. You know, they're, they're tired of having to be poor fishermen who don't get what they want. They want glory, they want riches, they want fame. Now this is the logical way to get it. Connect with some people in high positions, right? So the guy comes to Jesus and he says, you know, I've been following your law there's something missing. What am I lacking? Jesus says, have you done all these things? Names off some of the commandments. Oh yeah, done all that. And then there's this amazing verse. It says, and Jesus beholding him loved him. Have you ever noticed that? Did you ever catch that verse in the middle there? 
Jesus, beholding him, loved him. He looks at this man, this young man, with all these visions and dreams of what he wants to be, and he says to him, if you want to be perfect, go and sell everything you have and come and follow me. Jesus knew what I don't know when I go into relationships with other people. He knew what this guy was about to do. He knew that when he said to this rich young ruler, sell everything and follow me, the guy's going to go, hmm, which one is worth more to me? My stuff, my status, what people think of me, or this Jesus guy? <sighs> Who needs him? He knew that he was about to be rejected by this guy. And yet, Jesus, beholding him, loved him. I don't fully understand how Jesus could do this. How can I live in vulnerable relationship with people when I know full well they're going to hurt me? And yet this is what God does. He's the one who takes the risk, because there is a risk in that first command of God. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. When God says to do that, there is a risk, but it's not on us. God is the one who says, I'm going to go ahead and be hurt. I know, all right, I know ahead of time, you're going to hurt me, you're going to let me down, and yet I offer myself in vulnerable community to you, knowing you're going to hurt me, you're going to stab me in the heart over and over. I hand you the sword, and I throw open my robe, and I say, go ahead, stab me. And we will, and we'll do it to him again, and again, and again. And yet he lives in vulnerable relationship with us. This is the kind of God that we can serve. This is the kind of God who gives us an example of how, if he loves us this way, we can love one another. You know, when I got married, I walked down the aisle in this beautiful white dress. I was so happy. It was the best day of my life. I was walking toward my best friend. I loved him. I was surrounded by people I loved. What if I had been told the night before in a dream this man who you love so much, who you think is going to be your teammate for life, is going to hurt you more than anyone else has ever hurt you. He's going to cheat on you. He's going to beat you. He's going to abandon you. He's going to devastate your entire life. Do you think I could have walked down that aisle radiantly smiling and given myself to him in joyful surrender? How could I? And yet God does that with us all the time. God chooses to love us knowing we're going to hurt him over and over. He says that because he knows this is the way to life, to live vulnerably, to pour ourselves out in brokenness, in relationship with others who will hurt us. Because otherwise we'll become narrow and self-centered, we'll be self-protective, we'll put a shell around ourselves. I often talk to married couples who come for counseling because, you know, nobody comes for marriage counseling when they're doing great. It'd be great if they did, but uh, no, no. They wait until they've got these walls built up all around themselves, until they've got cycles that they're hardened into where they don't want to be with one another anymore. They just want out. And then they come to the counselor. All right, we'd like to talk to you for an hour and a half, and we'd like you to fix this. Well, that's a process, not an event. But one of the key things that I share with them in that process is that when you start out getting married, you usually start out two people who believe the other person is going to exalt you to a new level of happiness. Isn't that what happened when we started dating? I became so much happier. Then we got engaged. Woo, it was great. Think what marriage will be like. And then 
They launch themselves into the stratosphere and come down with a thud because that other person hurts them, misunderstands them, wants to do things in selfish ways. And then, of course, they start the everlasting cycle of marital dysfunction. If you would just do this, then I could be happy. If you would just stop doing that, then I could be happy. We have our goal of happiness and we try to push the other person out of the way, either direction. As long as I can get you out of the way, I can get to my goal of happiness. And the way that they do that is by building walls around themselves, putting in brick by brick. When you hurt me in this area, I'm going to put in a brick. I'm not going to share how I feel about that next time. I'm just going to say, whatever you want. And then the other person comes back with, all right, I'm just going to leave you out of how I'm planning for this. Or I'm just going to find out a way that I can manipulate you so I get it the way I want it. We all do this in our relationships, but none so vulnerably as in marriage. And the way we get rid of the brick wall is brick by brick, removing it, choosing to live vulnerably with a person in covenant relationship. And Jesus gives us the example of that by evidencing in his story, in this, throughout his life, but in this story of the rich young ruler, Jesus beholding him loved him. Jesus had to choose which one is going to be my goal, self-protection or vulnerability. Am I going to make sin or selfishness my enemy, or am I going to make pain my enemy? And Jesus embraced pain so that he could reject sin, so that he could choose not to be selfish. He embraced the pain of vulnerability, and that's what we have to embrace as well. God wants us to find our, ourselves first in risk-free relationship with him, and then to be able to pour ourselves out in risky relationships with others take the gamble and get hurt over and over, knowing that he'll be able to heal our hearts. The Desire of Ages, page 22, says, Only by love is love awakened. To know God is to love him. This is how it works. When I spend devotional time with God, when I deeply drink in how much he loves me and how much I'm worth in his sight, that satisfies my soul so that I don't have to go out into my relationships with others demanding that somebody else make me feel loved and worthwhile. Now I'm free to pour out love, not because I want to get love back, but because I am so deeply loved by God. This is the purpose of our devotional time. Many people just wreck their lives by, meaningful, by meaningless devotional lives. They're very earnest in trying to read through the Bible and trying to set up Bible studies and trying to learn about this topic. They're going to figure it all out. And in that legalistic mindset, they dry up emotionally until they're desperate for something to satisfy their hearts. And they throw out religion because it didn't satisfy them. When the real problem was, their devotional life was not a time of rich, meaningful communication with God in which they learned what love is like, to be loved and to find our worth in Jesus Christ. That's what our devotional time is for. You find those things in two areas, in, in two themes throughout Scripture. God says he created us in his image and he redeemed us by his blood. These two things are the measure of how much we're loved and how much we're worth. And every day in our devotional time, we need to behold the love of God, see him like that. And when we see him like that, instead of wasting our devotional time on marking something through our Bible or proof texting something that we can now give a Bible study to somebody on, not that those are bad things to do, but they're not devotional time. We need time with God to nourish our souls. That's what the Sabbath is for, right? A day 
to study creation and redemption, those two themes that show us how much we're worth, even when we sinned, that we are priceless in God's sight. You know, with my children, I often play this little game with them. They'll say, do you love me, Mommy? Oh, I love you so much. But if you disobeyed, would I love you then? Yes, Mommy, you would love me then. Oh, but if you were mean to me, then I wouldn't love you anymore, would I? Oh, Mommy, you would. But what if you were terrible to me? What if you burned my house down and took away everything I owned? Then I wouldn't love you anymore, would I? Oh, Mommy, you would still love me. You see, they have to find their roots in that because God loves us that way, doesn't he? God says, I have loved you with an everlasting love. There's nothing you can do that can make me love you anymore. And there's nothing you can do that can make me love you any less. And believing that, really believing that, I believe, is at the root of overcoming all addictions and all of our, our dissonance in our walk with God. Because addiction is always about worship. It's about worshiping someone or something else instead of God. It's always a worship issue, and every person is an addict because we're created worshipers. We can't help it. We'll either worship God or we'll worship self, and whatever form we worship self will come out as an addiction, some sort of compulsive way to try to get someone or something to bring me the satisfaction that only God can. And the solution is then not to try hard, not to do everything that I need to do, although those things can be helpful. You know, willpower is a tremendous um, help in overcoming an addiction, but without being satisfied deeply by the love of Christ, we'll just go from one addiction to another. I deal with people all the time. It's food, then it's sex, then it's drugs, then it's drinking, then it's relationships, then it's movies. It really doesn't matter. It's all the same thing. It's all worship of something other than God. Now, the cycle of love leads more and more to love. Love God with all your heart, will lead you to love your neighbor as yourself, which will lead you to go, wow, God, I can't believe how loving you are, that you love me when I hurt you the same way that this person hurt me. I don't feel like being friends with them anymore. But you've told me to live in vulnerable community, and I'm going to continue being a loving person. I don't mean be a doormat, be a sucker. I mean continue loving. Sometimes love does tough things. Love puts people in prison. Love doesn't say, well, I know you did that, but you said you're sorry, so I'm going to trust you. You know, if one of my children were to start compulsively stealing from me, would I invite him over and leave my wallet lying around all the time? If every time I did that, he stole all the money in it, would I continue doing that? That wouldn't be loving. That would be stupid. And it would actually be putting temptation right in front of him. And yet many people think that that's the way to handle forgiving other kinds of sins when people do things that are endangering to others, by all means, love imprisons, love gives consequences. We see that all throughout Scripture. But if we, if we find that sense of love in God, in that deep community with God, we will build deep community with other people. If we don't find that sense of being deeply loved and worthwhile in God, we will build walls to protect ourselves from pain. Um, you can see in this diagram with the tree, we have to put our re roots down deep in God's love. We have to have devotional time that's rich and meaningful, that pulls us into covenant relationship with God. 
our self-worth issues, you know, you hear a lot about self-esteem these days. Ah, this person has a low self-esteem. You know, that whole movement was started here in California, and the, there's a whole story behind that. It's very interesting to see how the self-esteem movement got started. But they basically said, well, these kids here in school seem to have low self-esteem. They don't think much of themselves, and they happen to be the same ones that become drug addicts and get pregnant when they're, you know, 13. Let's tell them how wonderful they are and see if that fixes it. Well, it didn't, but by the time they finished the experiment, all these books on self-esteem had gone all over the world, and now we have a whole self-esteem generation where we don't dare tell them that they didn't actually win. We'll just give them an award because they ran. Self-worth issues are rooted in mistrust of God's love for us, and then consequently in self-reliance. The Bible calls that pride and unbelief, but we often relate to it more if we understand it as self-reliance and mistrust. You know, I had a friend who told me about, he, he was in uh, Big Basin Park in Santa Cruz at the Redwoods. How many of you have ever been there? Anybody been there? Well, he said as he was there, there was a sign there that showed a diagram and said, the secret of these trees' strength is in their root system. And it showed not just what you could see above the ground, but it showed a diagram underneath the ground as well. And the roots of all the trees grew together with each other so that the trees did not blow over in the storm because they weren't just rooted in the ground, they were rooted in one another. Christian community should be like that. We need one another. That's why the law of God is not just love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and you're good, you're on your way to heaven. No, that's not enough. Now, many people kind of feel like this is a nebulous idea. How can I build close relationships? Or you don't know the people I'm around. Or I've prayed, but God hasn't given me a best friend. I want to give you a model that I've discovered in my own study of the life of Jesus, of the friendships of Jesus. Jesus seems to have had three distinct circles of friends. And I've come to the, the realization that I need these same three circles of friends. I think every one of us does. If we don't have all three, we end up being cheated in our, our walk with God. Now, the outer circle is the circle of influence, all those that have any contact with us. For Jesus, he had a lot of people who just, you know, the careless multitude, the Pharisees, whoever. For me, it's the lady at the checkout counter at the grocery store or the person I sit by on the bus, anybody and everybody. Anyone who I have any kind of contact with or who comes under my influence, even by listening to me when they don't meet me, those are the people within my sphere of influence. And I have a responsibility to those people. I need those people also because they help me to stay out of my comfort zone. They teach me. When I minister to the homeless person, when I talk to somebody who's not like me at all, you know, my husband talked about when he was talking to people at the clinic, when he gets treatment, you know, here are these tattooed people with big holes in their ears and strange hairstyles and, and all that. These are people that I wouldn't naturally go, wow, now that looks like a soulmate. Those are people that are still within my circle of influence. And as I reach out to them, I am blessed. I am stretched. I learn to go outside my comfort zone and think through other people's eyes, see, th see the world the way that they see it. Those, that outer circle is an important circle. But then the next circle is the circle of discipleship. These are the people that we actively invest in. Jesus had people he chose to invest in, didn't he? He chose 12 disciples. 
Now, there are other people that he invested some time in. We don't know exactly how much time he invested in some of them, like the 70. We know there were quite a few women who followed him and went around with him as he preached and taught. We don't know exactly how many people. And, of course, these three circles aren't just rigid, a person fits into one and not the other. Jesus invested in Nicodemus when he had one long conversation with him at night. But we don't have any record of Jesus spending any other time with Nicodemus. And yet that investment paid off, didn't it? Then we have the inner circle of vulnerability, the people that we don't just invest in, but the people who nurture us, the people who we flee to when we need comfort, and the people who confront us when we need to be confronted. You know, my husband will be the one who sometimes says to me, you know, Nicole, this is an area that I think you need to grow in. Or I'll confront him in the same way. We need those people. And unless we have people who are close enough to see our weaknesses, where are we going to get that confrontation? We must have the inner circle people, both to nurture us and to make us uncomfortable with who we are in our deepest levels. You know, I have a lot of friends who are in the outer circles and they may think of me as somebody who has it all together. You know, she's the counselor, she has all these people look to her for advice or whatever. But people within my inner circle, they know me. I'm a broken person growing, healing, learning more about the love of Jesus and how it applies to me all the time. I have so far to go. And that's a great place to be if I have other people there with me, helping me, learning how to apply the scriptures, how to find the leaves of the tree that are for the healing of the nations in the word day by day as I study. Now, one of my friends renamed my circles as I explained my uh, um, diagram to him. He said, that's your fans, peeps, and homies. So maybe the whole world understands this concept, right? <laughs> I don't know how many fans I have. Uh, my homies group is kind of big right now. I don't know how to fit them all in sometimes. <laughs> but this is the great thing. You know, you don't have to just keep people in those layers. You know, you are assigned to this layer and that's where you stay. We grow. We change. We invest in people for a period of time sometimes. Ultimately, Jesus had quite a few people in his inner circle because his disciples who initially were in that second circle, people he was discipling, he was investing in them, but he wasn't getting much out of them. They were a headache, I can tell you. But eventually they became his co-workers, didn't they? All the disciples except for Judas became part of that inner circle, people who stood by Jesus, who were willing to fight for him, who were strong for him. Now, tragically, some of them let him down. Who did he have in his inner circle? Right, we know of at least seven people who were in Jesus' inner circle. There may have been others that we don't know about, but he had his mother, he had Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, and he had Peter, James, and John. I find it interesting that Jesus included in his inner circle someone who would betray him, which tells me that I, who can't tell who's going to hurt me and who's not, should also take comfort in the example of Jesus. Jesus purposely included somebody in that inner circle so he could model for me how to handle utter betrayal, how to handle when somebody totally lets you down when you really believed in them, when you really loved them and you believed that they loved you back and then you find out the hard way it wasn't true. Jesus modeled how to handle that. He also had Judas in his second circle. He didn't put Judas in his inner circle, which also gives me confidence. Jesus didn't say you must bring the people who are gonna hurt you the most into your inner circle, just let them have it. Jesus did model boundaries. He modeled very clear 
levels of friendship. He would tell the disciples, you guys stay here, you guys come with me, and they did. I like how Jesus made those clear distinctions. He decided how to invest, and he invested strategically, but he did not choose to invest in people based on who he liked. At least it doesn't seem like that to me. The disciples were this hugely varied group, and he invested strategically in a wide variety of personalities, not just the ones that he liked, but in those who would be able to reach all different kinds of people. Now, I have a friend who years ago, when my husband was the uh, director of the Amazing Facts College of Evangelism, this friend Anil, he was uh, one of the students in our first class. And this young guy, oh my goodness, he had wild hair, he's this Indian guy who'd just become a Christian, none of his family was Christian, and he'd become a Seventh-day Adventist, and he and his best friend, their, their way of evangelism would go out, they, they would go out into parking lots and argue with people as they came out of grocery stores. What day should you be worshiping? Do you know who's the Antichrist? Um, that's not my personality. But that's what Anil did. And when he came to the Amazing Facts College of Evangelism, he was a, a very interesting character. We enjoyed having him there. And then as he shared his testimony one evening and I was there, I was just so moved hearing this boy talk, how he's, he's left isolated from his family, culturally in many ways. He's the only Christian. And I thought, oh, this poor boy, he needs a family. He needs somebody to love him. So, you know, Alan and I told him, hey, if you need anything, you know we're here, even though you don't necessarily have a chance to always open up to your whole family about everything going on in your life, we're here for you. Well, you know, a while after that, we stayed in touch with him, we stayed friends with him. He ended up going to college at Weimar right near where we were at the time. And, and one day Anil called me up and he said, Nicole, I realize I need to be discipled. I need somebody to mentor me and show me how I can grow in my character. And he said, I know your husband's too busy, but I wondered if I could ask you and if maybe you guys could, you know, help me out sometimes when I'm trying to figure out what to do. And I said, you know, I'll be happy to do that. Let's do that. So we developed a mentoring relationship where he would call me. Now, sometimes we didn't talk for a few months, and then sometimes we'd talk three times in a week. A lot of our conversations consist of something like this. Nicole, I need a sermon illustration for this. I'm speaking in about 15 minutes. Can you give me anything? <laughs> no. <laughs> it's great. I love it. He has so much energy, so much passion. He's so different than me. So we've been in this discipling relationship for years, investing in him, watching the, as the, the love of the Lord just blooms in his life in so many ways. Now he's pastoring in Central California. It's a pure delight watching Anil grow. And now he's moved into the inner circle in my life. Sometimes, you know, I'll be the one who texts him and says, hey, can you pray for me? I'm about to speak. Or I call him up, you know, like this morning. I called him up and said, I'm talking about this today. You've got to pray for me. And he gave me an illustration. Perfect. Thank you. This is great. This is the way God works in relationships. To polish us with people who are not like us at all, but who can grow us into the image of God as we share one with another. It's beautiful. It's awesome seeing how God works. Last week, my husband was able to be blessed to officiate at a wedding of two of our students from Southern who... When we first went to Southern six years ago, we had one student who had been at AFCO with us, and then when we uh, 
were at Southern. Here he was, a student at Southern. So we started inviting him over to our house on Friday evenings for supper with his roommate. His roommate ended up becoming a close friend of ours. Wonderful boy. He wanted to serve the Lord. He was studying to become a pastor. And then eventually one, one year he came home and said, I met this girl. She's really interesting. And so all through their relationship, we mentored them, nurtured them, spent time with them both, fell in love with her too. And last weekend, we had the joy of marrying them off to one another and just rejoicing with them. You know, they moved from the circle of influence, just people that we casually had met, to people that we were actively discipling, investing in, helping them. You know, we've had many difficult conversations where I'm going, this has got to go in your character. And, and then they've moved into a circle where this year when we were going through such a difficult time with my husband's health and, and the fears that I might end up being a widow, I had people I could call on or just send a text message to and say, Zeke, please pray for me. Or call Erica up and say, let's just pray together. I'm worried about something. We need, we need the Lord's peace. We're about to get test results back. I'm frazzled. I'm scared. The doctor just said this. It's wonderful. You know, the great thing about the way that God works in our lives is when he tells us, give. Give in your relationships. Give sacrificially. Love people, even though you may just get nothing but pain out of it. When we do that, when we give in relationships, when we are vulnerable, when we risk, often we find out we receive so much more than we ever gave. We're so blessed by loving and this is the whole cycle of life, of love, that God gives to us, not in order to get love back, not because he wants a relationship with us. God doesn't love us because he wants a relationship with us. He loves us because he is love, because it's who he is. It's what he does. He created us not in order to get people to love him, but be able to be able to pour out love upon us. And as he pours out that love on us, he's hurt by most people rejected by most people, but the few that turn back to him and respond in love satisfy his heart and give him the pleasure of loving in return. God is a God of relationships. He loves. He loves to love. He gives not in order to get, but just because he is love. And when he works in our hearts and transforms us into his image, we also love the same way, not in order to get but in order to give. Now, my computer's just about to die here, but I'm going to read one final quotation from the book God Attachment, page 126. We are wounded in relationships. Isn't that true? And we are healed in them too. We won't make much progress on our own. We may want to remain isolated so we can read and study on our own, but we won't take many steps forward that way. You know, over and over as I deal with people who are battling with issues, with, with addictions, with frustrations, with hating who they are and who they've become, I find there's no tool that heals the broken heart like another broken heart coming in contact with them. Another broken person coming along and saying, look, I've got rough edges and you've got rough edges. Let's just each pursue the kingdom of God, side by side. And as we walk along that journey, two are better than one. If they fall, the one will lift up the other. Obviously, we have to have God at the center of our relationships, or else they'll become self-centered. They'll become idolatrous. They'll become deadly. There's no idol more potent 
than the idol of relationships when they're separated from God. But there's also no gift more rich and beautiful and deep than the gift of love. Love relationship with God and love relationship with one another. And that's why that's the whole law of God. The, the law of love, to love one another and to love God, that great cycle that leads us closer and closer to the kingdom of God. I would encourage you, risk in your relationships. Take the gamble. Pour yourself out loving people, not in order to get something back, but because God has loved you much. And because as you love others, as you invest in others, it will be messy. It will be painful. I won't pretend anything else but it will enrich you and grow you into the kingdom of God and the character of God. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Father in heaven, we're so grateful for the gift of relationships you've given to us, that you have given us the gift of loving you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, that as we behold your love, we can learn to love others too. Lord, teach us to love. Teach us to live by the kingdom law so that when you come to take us to heaven, you will recognize us because your name will be in our foreheads. Your character of love will be imprinted deeply in who we are. Thank you, Lord. We love you. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.